Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to Hannah and Eric Go Birding. We're a couple of bird brains looking for adventure and some birds. She's Hannah and I'm Eric. And we bring you this podcast to share our adventures with you and also talk about other random thoughts we have on birding topics. Just a couple of disclaimers, we're not experts and if we discuss anything that's controversial, um, we hope you keep an open mind, but also just remember that what we discuss are our own opinions. So uh, this week we have... There's some rarities in the news, right? Yeah, definitely, always. So, um, just for some news, you know, Texas always has some stuff going on. They have a crimson colored gross beak, a yellow gross beak, which a lot of people are seeing. Um, a lot of our friends super jealous. Yeah, still, looks... we continue to be jealous day yeah. in and day out of our friends down south. Yeah. <laughs> um, Golden Crown Warbler. Uh, and in Florida, they've had Las Sagras flycatcher i'm probably saying that totally wrong thick build vireo red flanked blue tail um was, has been on scene in california and in arizona they've had a white throated thrush so um i think all of those were code four aba birds which is pretty cool and also florida has had a black faced grass quit in monroe county which is just the very southern tip yeah, all, of the, florida. all the way down there at the bottom mm-hmm. yeah in the keys <laughs> Um, just some other things that have been coming around. Uh, Nebraska's had a great crown rosy finch. Uh, there's been a trumpeter swan in New Mexico, which seems a little crazy. <laughs> That's pretty far south for that species. That's a very, very cold, cold weather bird down in New Mexico hanging out. <laughs> you know, trying to get away from the, the snow. Yeah, it's been a rough winter. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, lastly in Hawaii, I guess not lastly, last, in Hawaii there's been a brambling which was just photographed on Midway Island. So, man, you get all the way out into the middle of nowhere, and then you find a rarity. Like, <laughs> who's chasing that? Anybody. Just raise your hand if you're chasing that. Yeah, I'm just going to hop on a plane <laughs> and make sure I get out there to it. Seriously. Um, and then Eric was noting some of the Oregon rarities that have popped up, since that's where we're at. Yeah, we're up here in Oregon. We got, got a couple things that showed up. Go ahead. Um, sagebrush sparrow. Um, that's recently been split from uh, from the sage sparrow. It's Bell Sparrow and Sagebrush Sparrow now. But, Just about uh, like an hour east of Portland? Yeah, over, over in Troutdale. It's uh, about an hour east of Portland. So that was just yesterday, I believe. Then. Yeah. Was that that's Monday? Yeah, Monday. Yeah, so some things flying around. Let us know if there's anything weird in your corner. Yeah. Um, so a couple other birding news things. So we talked about Wingspan in our last episode, mm-hmm. which is a new game that's come out, and it's just... A card-based bird game. Yeah, it's a ton of fun. Eric and I have played it several times, and he was saying earlier how he wants to play around later today. Yeah, if we can squeeze that into our schedule. Might have to break out some beers and, and play around. Yeah, that would um, be fun. But there's been a <laughs> New York Times article that's come out on Wingspan, and I've seen it all over Facebook in the last couple of days with some of the different birding groups that I'm a part of, and then I've had friends share it on my Facebook page. Yeah, asking if we've heard of this game. Yeah. It's like, actually, we have heard of this game, and it's awesome. Yeah, and we have this <laughs> podcast episode about it. <laughs> Listen uh, to our podcast, and you would know that we have heard of this game. <laughs> um, yeah, but like we've talked about, it's a lot of fun, and we're excited to see that Elizabeth Hargrave and the rest of her team is getting this kind of recognition oh, yeah. on a bird that's so... People are saying, you know, it's very scientifically accurate, which in our experience experience i think it's it's there yeah, pretty much yeah. yeah i mean i haven't noticed any huge no no big glaring errors it's yeah but it's I mean, a game. Other than spelling but that's that's how it goes yeah that happens yeah it's not the end of the world no um so something else is coming up um the great texas birding classic um is coming up the registration ends april 1st so yes. if you're gonna compete against us you gotta you gotta hurry up and get registered or if we don't end up if we procrastinate long enough, you're not going to be able to. <laughs> no, we, we'll, we'll get registered. We'll do it. But we're looking at plane tickets. We're looking at doing the um, human powered tournament as always. Last year there were three teams, two of which competed, and we're hoping this year to have a little bit more competition. So if you're interested in biking, walking, skateboarding, skate- I was going to say skateboarding too, <laughs> um, using a razor scooter, yeah. to or kayaking, snorkeling, snorkel, yeah, snorkeling. I guess you'd have to look up. Maybe. You could you could just say swimming. You see I like think. cormorants diving into the water, and you only count birds <laughs> that break the surface. Well, anyway, that'd be a rough one. We hope um, <laughs> if any of you are all in Texas or in the Texas region, Oklahoma, Louisiana, yeah, if you can travel to Texas, <laughs> yeah, we hope um, you get a chance to compete. It's a lot of fun. At least, and our team yeah. is a lot of fun. Our team's a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah, we have the most fun. That's I know that. 
So that's pretty much a given. We win based on fun. Win based on fun. And there, there's more. There's more um, categories than just uh, than just human powered. So there, there's lots of other categories. We'll post a link in our show notes to, and of, to more information about the the competition. And of course, your registration fee goes to helping different conservation uh, focused projects in Texas. So it goes to a good cause. Yeah. And you get a cool T-shirt. It's a really awesome T-shirt. Yeah. Custom artwork every year. Yes. Um, hopefully someday my customer artwork. <laughs> <laughs> um, so our last little piece of news is that we're headed to the Wings Over Water Northwest Birding Festival this weekend up in Blaine, Washington, which is right on the border of Washington and like Vancouver, Canada. Mm-hmm. So that is going to be a ton of fun. I'm excited. We're going on like a bus tour yeah, across gonna, the border. Going to go bus across the border. Yeah. So we need to bring our passports because we don't have Canada in this most recent passport that we've gotten. That's true. Need to get stamps, Canada stamps. Yeah, definitely. So if you guys are at that festival, say hi. We're going to bring our copy of Wingspan so we can play around if anybody is there and interested. Well, that wasn't the last bit of news. We also had a review. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we did have a review from KJT07. They said, excellent content in a casual and friendly manner. Information for the beginner and expert. Stories that take you along with them far and afield. One of the best birding podcasts out there. Which, oh my gosh, that's yes. so nice. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, KJT07. Yes, and we appreciate all the reviews that we've gotten. We have about 15 so far. I think yeah. six. We're, we're uh, into the double digits now. I think 14 five <laughs> out of fives and then one four out of five. <laughs> Yeah. So we can always improve. Yeah, definitely. But thank you all that have taken the time to review. It really um, it keeps us going. Yeah, <laughs> we do it for the reviews. Do it for the reviews. <laughs> but yeah, Doing thank it for you. The birds. <laughs> thank you so much. We appreciate it. Yeah. So one one last note before we jump into our interview, um, our episode today, which is our interview with uh, with Joshua, the director of um, the Wildlife Center of the North Coast. Um, we had some issues recording. Uh, there was a hailstorm that blew through about three quarters of the way through the interview. We tried to ignore it as best we could, but uh, the microphone did a pretty good job of picking it up, and I had a lot of trouble trying to remove that sound. So, you're gonna have a hailstorm. You can sound like you're actually there with us in the hailstorm. And then um, there was a couple volunteers that came in and out of the room next to where we were at. You can kind of hear the door opening and closing every once in a while. So. Listen for those little uh, little nuggets of information. Little, little nuances. Yeah, little nuances. Yeah, little that's... Easter eggs I left in there for you. <laughs> that's what makes us special. You know, we're out in the field doing it. We're not, like, sitting <laughs> in a fancy padded room. We're... Can't we're, afford a fancy padded room. Shh. We're <laughs> real, you know. We're, we're gritty. Gritty. We have teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and enjoy the, the episode. Well, Josh, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day. We know you just came back from a conference, and I'm sure you're tired and got a lot to do. But we're at the North Coast, at the Wildlife Center of the North Coast, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And Astoria, Oregon, or just outside of Astoria. And we're sitting down with Josh, the executive director. Would you like to tell us about yourself? Yeah. um, So I started here at the Wildlife Center. So this is the Wildlife Center of the North Coast. Like I said, we're a nonprofit wildlife hospital up in Astoria, Oregon. We've been here for about um, we've been here for about twenty. We're in our twenty second year of operation. Uh, I've been the executive director of the organization for the past. Well, I'm in my fourth year. Um, we small staff, primarily volunteers. We have about a hundred volunteers if you count our on site volunteers that actually help with the hands on care mm-hmm. and our transport volunteers because we cover a large geographic zone. Uh, we are based in Astoria, Oregon, but we serve. All of Southwest Washington, so Long Beach Peninsula, uh, up up into like Ocean Shores, down to Newport, Oregon, or further south. Wow! If we need to. Oh my gosh! It's a huge range. <laughs> so we see, you know, all we take in all manner of wildlife, injured, orphaned, and sick. Uh, Specialize in seabirds because we're here on the coast, yeah. uh, and then we cover such a huge piece of coast. Um, but I've been with this organization since 2008. I was 16 at the time. Um, started between my sophomore and junior year of high school, looking for a wildlife, hands-on wildlife experience uh, to volunteer so that my ultimate goal is to be a wildlife research biologist. Uh, I wanted to go to school to get my biology degree and progress into a research field, conservation biology kind of research field. My grandfather was a biology, well, he was a biology teacher um, in Preston College here in town for 20 years. 
and oh. hearing that story. Yep, he was president of Clatsop for 20 years. Oh, wow. uh, so he, That's kind of cool. Yeah, he, he retired in 1990, so it was 1970 to 1990. Uh, he was a biology teacher first here. He's got his master's in zoology, bachelor's in biology. He got me really interested in wildlife and the outdoors. And so I, I, I actually tried to volunteer here when I was 13. I called up uh, my mother is an insurance agent locally. I'm mm-hmm. a third generation historian, so we've been around here forever. <laughs> but my mother is an insurance agent locally, and she, her um, agency insures this organization. And she was like, "Oh, you should, you should try volunteering out there. I know that they have animals and wildlife, and yeah. and you can work hands on with them." And and of course, my misconception. I everyone has misconceptions about rehabilitation, which, um, but so I thought that I was gonna be snuggly, you know, little baby beavers <laughs> and. And all these little fluffy, yeah, these little fluffy mammals. Um, but it wasn't the case. I, but I called when I was thirteen, and Charnel, the previous director and founder, uh, she answered and she said, "Oh no, gotta be eighteen to volunteer." So I waited three years, and when I was sixteen, I called and said I was eighteen. <laughs> pretended to be someone completely different, and uh, she invited me out. They don't take any proof, or at the time we didn't, <laughs> uh, but. I come in and it's all birds. It's all there were here, and, and I'll be perfectly honest. At the time, I think this is the case with a lot of people that, because we're mammals, mm-hmm. uh, birds are not people's favorite thing, typically speaking, to begin with. You, you maybe grow our up, listeners might disagree. Yeah, right. <laughs> you grow up. You what grow up. To? Yeah. <laughs> you grow up around dogs and cats yeah, yeah, primarily. Yeah. Birds are this like foreign. Yeah, animal. they're they're out in yeah. nature. They're you not don't see here. them up yeah. close. And that's how I was. I started here, and I was, like, kind of bummed, honestly, and kind of afraid of birds. Um, but slowly, you know, I fell in love with the work, and it was very, I mean, it was very, you know, like, instantly I was immersed in the work. And mm-hmm. the previous director, there was no training program. She just said, grab that turkey vulture for me, mm-hmm. right? And you know, I don't know how to these things, and they barf. And so I caught it, um, and, and slowly I became, you know, I fell quickly in love with the work here and the yeah. birds. And now I prefer birds to mammals, uh, for what that's worth. As now. most of us do. Yes, <laughs> they are definitely superior <laughs> creatures. But, uh, yeah, so birds are now, I mean, we, we take in mammals here at our facility. Mm-hmm. Um, not very many come through. It's primarily birds, and they are my favorite, of course. I love birds. <laughs> and everyone says, what's your favorite bird? And I can't even name one. I'll say, oh, common murders or double-crested cormorants. And then next thing you know, I'm just saying, oh, well, I guess, because it's the all, list, all, listing all them taxonomically going through <laughs> yep. the whole list. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it... Um, that's how I kind of got started. When I turned 18, so two years after I started, I uh, tested for my wildlife rehab permit in the state of Oregon and got my state license as a wildlife rehabilitator and became kind of the assistant, well, the previous director, the long-time executive mm-hmm. director, Charnel, she was calling me her assistant director, kind of a misnomer because all I was doing is animal care. I wasn't doing any of the actual high-end administrative work. <laughs> um, and then, you know, went to college after I graduated high school. Uh to get my, my, my biology degree. Um, so freshman year, I went from biology degree to English major to <laughs> business. And then I met my wife and dropped, we both dropped out. And I uh, worked a bunch of odd jobs uh, to support our living while still volunteering here weekly. And uh, slowly started kind of coming back. 2014 came around, I quit my job, went back to school. Well, my wife supported us, and I came back here to volunteer full-time, seven days a week as a volunteer. <laughs> and that's when our founder, Charnel, started, um, she fell ill. She pretty yeah, yeah. quickly, rapidly became ill. And since I was a licensed rehabilitator, I took over all animal care of the facility. Uh, we had no paid staff at the time. Um, and then by the end of 25th, so I didn't go back to school, obviously, after I came back here and she became ill. After 2000, September of 2015, she ended up admitted to the hospital and was there for three weeks before she passed away mm-hmm. and the board of directors was like well you're executive director now right oh, wow. and Jeez. so I'm 23 pop, pop that in yep 23 at the time and had no experience with the you know um, hands-on animal care uh, or I'm sorry had experience with the hands-on didn't have experience well, only with, experience with that was the only yeah. experience mm-hmm. I had I didn't have the experience with um, administration you know, work in requiring funding, putting, and, right? Yeah. Fundraising, oh, wow. writing grant. I mean, I'd taken some grant writing classes, but writing grants, um, putting together a budget or a profit and loss, a balance sheet, all these things I had no idea yeah. how to do at the time. Um, so I, of course, went to tons of trainings <laughs> and worked with mentors and coaches. And 
Uh, so it went from zero paid staff to myself being the only paid staff to myself and part-time person to cover my weekends. Yeah. And then we grew eventually to having, um, let's see, two and a half full-time equivalent wow. staff. So myself oh. full-time, part-time maintenance guy, part-time fundraising person, and part-time rehab person to cover my weekend. So I was covering full-time rehab and full-time ED myself. Okay. Um, and full-time education. <laughs> I was the education <laughs> program person yeah. as well. Still am. Um, but then I lost my development person. My maintenance guys dropped back for budget reasons to mm-hmm. a quarter-time and so now it's just myself full-time, and then I actually hired in September of 2017 a full-time rehab person to oh. cover the clinic. So um, she uh, takes care of managing the clinic now. I'm still a licensed rehabilitator, but I have a very limited hands-on role anymore. Um, and now I'm currently hiring for a part-time admin assistant to come help with some of the supportive role back here. <laughs> help clean up the desk. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that's kind of our story and how we got to where we are now. Wow. So yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, a wild ride. Yeah, it's an adventure. Right. So right. You, you mentioned like testing for a rehab sure. license to get started. So what what, did, what was the, like the process? process? Is it just like, like a written test? Do you have to like yeah. go someplace and do like a physical like fix this wing sort right. of thing? So they require, there's some prereqs to even take the test. So you have right. to have when I took it, this was 10, gosh, 10 years ago, just about now, almost 10 mm-hmm. years ago. And you have to um, have two years experience working in an active caseload facility or under a licensed rehabilitator that's, okay. you know, got an active caseload. So you have to have some sort of experience with wildlife. And I had already, I had two years. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no age limit at the time. Now I think <laughs> no, you have to be 18. Um, but I had, I was 18 when I um, uh, got my license. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, so you have to, uh, there's a written test, and every state is different. And some states don't even have individual licensed rehabbers. There's just a license for the facility. Okay. Each state is different. Okay. Um, federally, the permits are the same. So I have a state permit, and I have two federal permits, um, which I can tell you about. But the, yeah, the state permit, it's a multiple choice question test. Mm-hmm. And it asks you, you know, basic questions. Um, uh, Coyote comes in presented with this issue or this issue. How? What do you? What are your steps? Or yeah. what do you do? This, 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 or this, right? Yeah. Um. So some medical questions. Mm-hmm. Um. Because you know it's a medical role. Yeah. You know, we're we're pers- we're giving antibiotics. We're giving injections. We're drawing blood. Um. So yeah, you're, some, you're treating an injured animal. Yeah. yeah. But we're also naturalists, so we have to know natural history of all of our animals. So they yeah. ask questions about that. Um. Uh. So yeah, it's basically multiple choice, mm-hmm. pass or fail. It's a five part um, test, and you have to get the majority of each part. So you are required. There's, and again, this is ten years ago. I don't know. They're working on revising it, um, and I'm on a board for the Oregon Wildlife Rehab Association that's trying to work with the state to revise it. Oh. But there's the basic wildlife rehab section. You have to pass to get your permit. Then there's birds, raptors, because for some reason they separate birds of prey and birds. Um, <laughs> Birds, birds. Yeah, right. <laughs> Mammals and then reptiles and amphibians. And so I passed all but reptiles and amphibians because we just don't do them, so I didn't take uh-huh. that part. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that's how that works. But we have, yeah, we have a state permit. So in Oregon, everyone that rehabilitates wildlife, unless they're a sub permittee, so like my rehab staff person is on my permit as my sub permittee. Okay. Um, she'll be getting her own license eventually. But we also, in order to do birds, we have to have a federal U.S. Fish and Wildlife mm-hmm. Service license. So I have my federal rehabilitation license, which is no testing involved with that. Which you just have to fee. have, yep, it's a fee. You have to have the right enclosures, and you have to have some sort of experience as a wildlife rehabilitator. So okay. having my state permit gives me that experience. Yeah. Um, so they go hand in hand, hand in hand there, and then I have my U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service education permit, that allows me to keep not education animals. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And how many education animals do you guys have? Currently, we just have three. So we have uh, an American Kestrel Falcon, Flynn. Um, we saw, saw yep, him out right there. And then we have a double-crested cormorant, uh, Cormy, because, uh, you know, original. <laughs> creative, you know. Yeah, and then we have a uh, Screech Owl, Odin. Oh, so you don't have the pelican anymore? No, pelican, she died before Charnel passed away. Oh, that's too bad. So, yeah. She was always so much fun when she'd come to the fort yep. and do Tarts was her because she came from Tarts, Oregon, yeah. or Tillamook area. Um, but yeah, she, she was... such a ham. She was about... Yeah, she was about 15, 14 or 15 really? years old. Oh, wow. So, yeah, and then we used to, I mean, we had a lot of different birds. We had mm-hmm. spotted owl, we've had common mirrors, you know, monoceros oculus. Yeah. Uh, we've had a northern fulmar in our program, so we've had oh, man. a whole bunch of species. Oh, I remember the fulmar. Yep. Yeah. Nurdle. What's his name? Nurdle. 
Yeah. He just kind of sat there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sat there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not not much for land. They're not ones for land. Uh, you know, yeah. Walking but around land. It was still interesting though to have him out because so many people at the park they didn't know anything about that kind of bird and to see it in person. You know, yeah, that's, that, that's like pretty a, cool. A funky little like, tube nose thing. Like, yeah. yeah they, what exactly. is, this is not what I normally think of. Most <laughs> most people thought. So it was a roll with a broken bill. Yeah. You know, because he was, you know, gray on the back, white on the sounds like a goal. Mm-hmm. Like most goals, like a lot of goals, I should say. <laughs> um, and so people were like, oh, a seagull, which, of course, I always correct him. There's no such thing as a seagull. <laughs> but uh, there's, there's just different varieties of goals. Right. <laughs> just smiles. <laughs> One of my biggest peeves, I tell you, you get on a phone with someone and they're like, I found a seagull with a broken wing. I've never even seen a seagull. What? I know. How would you? <laughs> and then and I say, okay, well, what's wrong with the goal? And they're like, the what? I'm like, the seagull, you know, you have to. <laughs> it's, you it's, have hard, to it's hard to take yourself and say that. Yeah, I know. Forward there, it's terrible. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, about like how many um, animals do you admit a year? Um, so historically, uh, the past four years have been kind of anomalous for us. But historically, prior to 2016, we would see between 2,000 and 3,000 animals a year. Wow. Oh my gosh. Um, primarily seabirds. Mm-hmm. Um, 2014. In 2015, we had the warm water blob. I don't know if you heard about the warm water blob off the coast. It mm-hmm. was, you know, where we are not tropical by any means up here. We all know that. Um, and our water very, very is cold. Water. Right. Our water is cold. And so the animals, the fish, um, the whole food chain is reliant upon a cold water system. Um, and so we had a warm water blob where there were a lot of surface, hot surface water, warm surface waters. And um, what we were seeing was that was causing the fish, the, the you know, the primary food source for our birds, um, going deeper, mm-hmm. going to the colder water, deeper than our birds were hunting or they were leaving. Um, so we were getting, 2004, 2015, we were getting, I mean, hundreds of seabirds coming oh and starting. Wow. Um, we're looking at, we're looking at adults that should have known how to hunt because, mm-hmm. you know, adults, I mean, seabirds are long-lived. And so, you know, you see, I think MERS have to be, what, like five or six to sexually reproduced or something like that. Yeah. And we were seeing a full grown adults that were starving to death, which is strange because Yeah. Um so Very there's no there's no one hundred percent definitive proof that though that was the reason mm-hmm. we are you know, we saw all those animals. 2014, 2015. Um but so the blob started two thousand fourteen and it carried on I think two thousand seventeen is when it started to dissipate. Mm-hmm. Well two thousand sixteen, two thousand seventeen, two thousand sixteen we only had five hundred and fifty animals come through. Mm-hmm. Um and in 2017, it's like 640. And so we, of course, my, if I were to analyze that myself, I mm-hmm. would say that blob wiped out a bunch of birds. Yeah. 14, 15. Then they left. They went somewhere. Any, any, anyone that was, right. was able, strong enough to get yep. out of here, got out of here. And I, I have a board member that's with NOAA Fishery, and she um, did surveys off the coast on the bird levels. And, and they I mean, they saw, I think, 2016? Don't quote me on that, but well, you're, quoting me. <laughs> you're but, getting quoted. Yeah, <laughs> I think I don't know for certain, but 2016 or so, um, she went out there and did a survey, and they uh-huh. saw record low numbers of all seabirds out oh there. They're just gone, and so and of course record high surface temps. So um, to me, and of course the coast survey people that walk the beach and count dead birds, mm-hmm. we're seeing. I mean, if you look at their surveys online, there are low numbers. Which, I mean, that could be fact, all kinds of factors could lead to that. Could be yeah. they had low numbers of volunteers doing that. But, but you know, it all kind of, to me, correlates. Mm-hmm. And so we saw warm blob, water blob, caught all these birds off guard, yeah. killed off a bunch. And then 16 through, uh, well, 18 really, we've been growing each year. So 2018, we had about 860. So it's been going up by about 100. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess 200 last year from 2016. But, um, been slowly building back up, but really, it's I think the blob had a lot to do with it. The blob, yeah, the blob. Um, <laughs> that sounds super <laughs> ominous. Um, but yeah, so we, you know, they're talking about now. You know, you read reports about the ocean temperatures and situations mm-hmm. a lot better off now than it was, and so we're expect we're always prepared for a, a, what we call a mass die off or seabird crash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we're always prepared for that because historically we've always. Hands so every happens. year, you know, yeah. around the you know late summer, early fall, we start getting a ton of seabirds, juveniles coming in there, migrating their first migration. You know, yeah. um, it's a rough go. It's, it's a rough around. go, <laughs> and then we get those winter storms, you know, the big wind storms, yeah, yeah. and typically there's a southwest or westerly winds that push those birds from the water to the coast, mm-hmm. and they'll end up, you know, after a huge windstorm with 
20 birds a day for a week coming in. Oh, man. But that hasn't historically been. So my, my new rehab person, she's never worked with seabirds before I hired her. She's worked with other animals mm-hmm. um, at different rehab centers. Uh, rehab, the seabird rehab is like a serious niche, you know. It's not a lot of people... That's a serious specialty. Well, you can't learn it in most of the country. You've got to right. be, yeah. you be in a specific place to learn. And it just takes such special... Yeah, yeah, and there are some serious skills, um, husbandry requirements, all kinds of things. But she's never worked with seabirds until I trained her here. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's never had a die-off. So, you know, she'll cut, I'll walk in, she'll be like, oh my god, I have five western greaves. Oh, I'm so stressed. I'm like... You ain't seen nothing. You know, because, I mean, I've been in there where we had 300 Western Greaves at one time yeah. in the hospital, oh you know. Gosh. You walk in and everyone screams all at once, you know, all the Greaves. And... <laughs> but, uh, but no, it's, um, uh, I, we're always prepared for a die-off because yeah. we're, historically we're used to die-offs um, of birds. And with the environment, with the ocean situation mm-hmm. improving yeah. um, we're expecting to start seeing more birds yeah, and there's going to be more birds so there's the mm-hmm. potential for more yeah. birds to be dying and we're yeah. going to see better reproductive health out there so we're going to see you know more murres nesting in haystack rock and successfully nesting in Yapuna head and yeah. um, down south and so yeah okay so to answer your question in short I should say how many <laughs> animals uh, historically 2,000 3,000 we're at we're Last year, about 860. So okay. we'll say a dec- decadal average of mm-hmm. 1,500 animals a year. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and, and of, of the ones that you admit, like how many so end right. up being releasable? Yeah. So, in the end, like percentage we, or yeah. numbers? Or... So we calculate our, again, I'll try to do a short answer here. Yeah. yeah. But we calculate, we calculate our survival. There's no standard in wildlife rehabilitation for how to calculate a survival rate. And I think there's a lot of factors that go into play there. And that's because we're all nonprofits Mm -hmm. and we all have different resources coming in. So like a a small home rehabber that is paying for it out of her own pocket, his or her own pocket, um, likely will have the same resources that a $250,000 budget organization like ours does. And so they're going to have a a lower survival rate or release rate. Mm -hmm. Whereas us, we have staff, we have the money coming in. Yeah. We can have a little you have equipment. Yeah. Right. And then you look at Portland Audubon that has, not Portland Audubon, let's say Pause Wildlife Center up in Seattle. They have potentially a million, two million dollar budget, mm-hmm. right? They're going to have it significantly higher. They have vets on staff. You know, they have much higher. Like 24 hour care for some of these animals that may need it. Yeah. Right. So what we do is, you know, we, I have a database online that we use for wildlife rehab. It's called Wildlife Rehab Medical Database. It's free for oh. wildlife rehabilitators. Um, and we see, you know, we take our total, we subtract anything that died on, on arrival, anything that was dead on arrival, because that obviously... That shouldn't count against yeah. you. Yeah. So we take those out. We also take out currently um, uh, ones that we had to euthanize on intake because of multiple reasons. A, there are regulations we have to follow. So if mm-hmm. an animal comes in with a dislocated elbow, a bird, for instance, mm-hmm. it's illegal for me to really release that animal because that wing could pop back out in the wild mm-hmm. and who's going to find it, right? So yeah. we have to euthanize. Usually they develop arthritis too. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain fractures that we have to euthanize and intake. Um, if something, if a seabird comes in with only one eye or a blind one eye and not, we have to euthanize. Okay. So because of that, uh, we don't want those to count against our survival as well because mm-hmm. we had to euthanize so they might as well be DOA, yeah. DOA. We also take out, so some of those are also ones that we simply know we cannot help. Right, this animal, you know, it's going to take a two thousand dollars surgery, for instance, and prognosis is iffy. So we're going to weigh our resources. We're going to you kind of like determine whether we have the resources to take care of the animal. Mm-hmm. And so we take those out because currently, at our current time in our development as a rehabilitation center, we don't have the resources. So those are DOA as well. And then anything that died within twenty four hours, we count out because a lot of the time we do critical care when they come in. Mm-hmm. But if they die within 24 hours, they're going to die anyhow. Okay. And so now we still we track both. So we track our survival rate with those 24-hour ones. Yeah. But the one that we advertise really is one without because, as like I said, at our current stage, those ones we couldn't have helped. So we track them in-house, though, so we can see how we're progressing as an organization mm-hmm. yeah. saving those 24-hour ones, those first 24 hours. So currently, and it's not much different, so currently our... I want to say, without actually looking it up right now, our survival <laughs> rate, not including those first 24-hour ones, yeah. is about 68% survival rate. Oh, okay. Which is pretty good. It's a lot I mean, better than they're doing you, in the wild. Yeah, yeah, and you probably wouldn't go to a hospital that says, 
You got a seventy or sixty eight percent chance of surviving when you come in here. But yeah. consider we're non profit, they can't tell us the problem and we have you know limited yeah. resources. Um and we act as a mash unit, essentially. I mean that's what rehab is. It's I mean I shouldn't say that. We we do long term care of animals, but really when they're coming in, they're critical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Animals don't just admit themselves and they're feeling a little iffy, right? They're coming yeah. in when they're near death, um, hit by a car, something traumatic. Yeah, something so big. we're dealing with emergency situations. Um and we have to identify, you'll play investigative work to figure out what's wrong with the sample. Mm-hmm. So it's about 68%. Our release rate is closer to 45 So okay. when I say survival, that is anything that was released, uh, transferred to a different facility, mm-hmm. uh, and animals that are still pending. So when I, tr- so like if I were to look right now, every animal that's still currently alive mm-hmm. plays in my survival rate. Okay. Um, because they're still alive. Release rate is animals currently already gone. I actually think like transferred, I consider released. So transferred are also involved in there. So, okay. um, so yeah, still 45% release rate, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty par for the course for what okay. we have. So, um, uh, you can't, like I said, you can't find a standard, but when I even talk to the rehab centers, that's pretty standard. You'll have people 45 to 55, some are down as low as 30 to 25 to 30% survival. just depends mm-hmm. on what your resources are. So, okay. yeah, survival rate 68%, release is about 45 to 47. Yeah. All right. Do you have, like, a specific bird that, like, sticks in your memory? Like, you, you've been doing this for years. <laughs> like, is there one that you think about? Like, whether you really hated that one because, you know, right. it barfed in your face or whatever. Two or it <laughs> sure. was, like, the one that tugged at your heartstrings. Yeah. You know, there, yeah. Um, there's a lot of those stories. So, we had a traverse one one year, um, years ago. Um Back when Charlie was still alive. And, I mean, this one's more of a tug at my heart, so it wasn't released. Um, mm-hmm. It came with a horrible fracture in its wing. And we ended up pinioning it, which means we amputated it at the wrist mm-hmm. uh, to place in a permanent facility, in a breeding facility for Trumpers ones. Okay. Because we wanted it to live. Um, I'm, a little, I'm very picky about which animals I place these days because of this. This is one reason. Um, but this animal, I mean, it was just the most... I mean, here's this huge animal, right? Like, I mean, Trumpers ones are... Yeah, it's a big bird. Yeah, I mean, it can, it can hurt you. They, I mean, their defense is not to bite, it's to punch, you know. Uh, really geese, I, I didn't know that. Geese and swans have actually a special on their wrists, so they're, you know, when they have the same bones in their wings as we have in our arms. Mm-hmm. Right? So they have a shoulder, humerus, uh, uh, radius, ulna, wrist, and then mm-hmm. what would be our fingers are a bunch of little bones connected. But um, so on their wrist, which is up by their shoulder, uh, they have geese and swans have special nodules. That are actually defense. They actually punch with their wings. They have such really? strong breast muscles. Oh so this I, thing, I guess, if it, you're, you're, yeah. it's like what is it, a nine, ten pound bird? Oh, it, got it. Trevor Swan. Let's see. You're looking at like eight, sometimes eight thousand grams, so eight kilos. So you're looking at sixteen, sixteen oh, pounds. Wow. Hey, you got you got to get sixteen pounds into the air. Those you got to <laughs> yeah. have some strong muscles. So, but this bird could have been devastatingly powerful. Yeah. But you know, I would pick it up, and I was at the time one of the. I mean, I was. Most of our volunteers still to this day are retired older women. Okay. And this animal was not something, A, it's awkward to hold. Mm-hmm. So I was one that's always in charge of holding the thing, right? <laughs> and of course, the rehab, or rehabber and director at the time, Charnel, she was, what, 66, 65, 66, yeah. and like maybe 98 pounds soaking wet, right? <laughs> um, five foot even, right? Yeah. And so this animal, it, it, I, it's big, the bird's bigger than she yeah, is. Right. Yeah. So here I'm holding this swan, and every time I'd hold it, it would, I mean, I, I'm sure I don't anthropomorphize. I do my very best not to anthropomorphize. Yeah. That's a huge no-no in wildlife rehab. But you end up getting too connected. It, yeah. it would like wrap its neck around, and I think it's just comfortable, around my neck. It would lay its head down on my chest while I was working on it. Yeah. And something about that was just so precious to me, you know? <laughs> Long story short, this one, we, re- we released it to this other facility, transferred it, and they did blood work and found some sort of chronic issue mm-hmm. and they euthanized it. It's like, you know, after we put all this work in. Oh, yeah. But, but, you know, um, I don't know, you know, I've been doing it almost 11 years now, mm-hmm. this work, and it's hard, and especially when you deal with seabirds because you see 20 murders coming on all at once, so it's mm-hmm. hard to, like, pick one special case. But we've had, um, I mean, there are cases that stick out just in that a lot of time went into them. We had a bob, well, it's not a bird, but bobcats come in that we don't get very often um we have we get bald eagles that we do surgeries on that we work for i mean months and months and months trying yeah. to condition and get back for release so when we are able to release those it's pretty pretty, pretty special. spectacular yeah um but then we had a couple albatross that were kind of special we had a lace and albatross come in 
it was landlocked on a barge from Hawaii that ended up in Rainier. <laughs> and when they were, I read about that one. Yeah. Yeah. So we, when they were, they saw it on the barge. Like, oh my gosh, well, we have this. So my my wife and I actually drove down to Rainier. Oh my gosh. And picked it up, <laughs> brought it back, and it was perfectly healthy. It was a little bit dehydrated because mm-hmm. it was on this barge for a while, and yeah. it was a little thin. Because um, the thing is, you know, albatrosses, a lot of those big seafaring birds yeah. need to taxi or run on the water before they fly and it didn't have enough space on that uh, barge to actually get flighted so it couldn't get off the barge so it got on the barge and then stuck was too afraid to just hop into yep. the water to yep. do its thing obviously yep. huh. so we had to give it a bath so when birds aren't in water they don't bathe they don't preen they don't waterproof themselves seabirds of course have to be waterproof otherwise they become wet rag and sink yeah. and drown or hypothermic and so we had to get a Dawn dish soap bath like they do with oil spill. Oh, you see birds. all the Dawn commercials? <laughs> yep. We use a lot of Dawn for washing birds because we wash birds that are just contaminated with dirt as well. Okay. Um, oils from hands will make them lose waterproofing. Any blood that gets on their feathers will ruin their waterproofing. Any okay. contaminant, really. So we washed her. We put her out in an enclosure. We couldn't really flight test her because, I mean, we didn't have an enclosure big enough, you know. <laughs> Our largest enclosure is 155 feet long. Well, she would probably take at least half of that just to get taxi uh, enough. Slam it yeah. to the end. Right. So we checked her wings out. They seemed fine. Once we got her kind of bulked up, we, um, which was only a couple weeks' time, we contacted the bar pilots locally. They brought us across the bar in the worst, stormiest weather, which is great for an albatross. High winds and everything. High winds, and that's where they do their best. Anyway, we released out there, and you know, it flew off, and it was perfect. <laughs> um, but then the other ones, a black-footed albatross we got, that we got a call from Long Beach. Um, a guy found seven, um, seven or eight, I think, black-footed albatross oh my God. dead wow. except for one that was still alive and all the others so we collected all the bodies yeah sent them off to a university to be looked at and all the other ones had been um shot and bludgeoned like blood oh, force geez. on the head oh that's awful so my thought is there's a fishing vessel out there yeah these birds are in the way these guys thought it'd be fun um yeah. to sh- like potentially shoot them bring them in bludgeon them right and throw them off and they all end up in the same current and this one that we that was alive had a horrible fishing line t- wrapped around its foot, like so tight it was cutting into tendons, cut through a tendon. And hmm. otherwise it was fine, we thought. So we brought to that, we spent a lot of money on a surgery to make an artificial tendon to try to get that foot working and everything. Right. Um, but it was too far gone. The foot joint actually yeah. ended up rotting away, essentially. Oh. Um, so when we, we euthanized it, we did x-rays and it had, it had been shot and also had blood force trauma to its head. So still not survived that. But Jeez. You know, it's it's kind of kind of upsetting, yeah. but so those are kind of the those are the ones that kind of stick my yeah. memory. The ones that <laughs> that either were like so unbelievable, you yeah. know, to the ones that we just spent a lot of time working on. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Well, and that's that's just with like four stories out of two thousand a year. Yeah. Yeah. Compounded by yeah, eleven years. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's a lot, a lot of birds. Yep. Do you have any pictures of the Trumper swan with its neck around? You know, I don't know. That I'm sure somewhere in my previous director's old files we could find one. Um, <laughs> I feel like it would be like, who wore that dress? Like Bjorn or, oh, yeah, Bjorn yeah. or something? <laughs> the swan dress. It was similar. Dress. I mean, uh, yeah, right. You wore it first. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, better probably. <laughs> who wore it best? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I was also wondering about rehabbing. So, like, there's a lot of people that, you know, look at what you guys do and, and are just really excited about it. Or there's backyard rehabbers mm-hmm. that I don't necessarily know if they know what they're doing. Right. But, like, what – what you had a track that mm-hmm. you took to go into this field. Sure. But what's, like um, – What's like a common track that somebody would take if they were looking, you know, a 16-year-old's listening to this or something, sure. that would like to go in this sort of field? How? What's the best um, way for them to get started? Yeah, well, I mean, actually, you're, you're kind of describing the lead-up to my presentation I did at the <laughs> National Conference, because oh. my presentation was called From Hobby to Profession. Um, but so if you're going to go to the conference, yeah. don't listen to the rest of this. <laughs> Just go to the conference and hear them yeah. do it in person. But um, it... Uh, Typically, it's it's a patch. Someone's like, I really want to work with wildlife. Uh-huh. Um, we get people that simply just want hands-on wildlife experience for oops, sorry for a future job working, say, in wildlife biology or something. Yeah. Um, but as far as like what I would recommend for someone interested in getting in the field, it would be look around for a local rehab facility and offer to volunteer. Not mm-hmm. a lot. And, I mean, there are a lot of rehab facilities across the country. Oregon has a ton and so by facility, 
that could be someone's home, you know. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of home rehabbers. There's not a lot of big facility like centers like ours. Okay. Um, there's like there's I don't know six we'll say in Oregon. Um, and again, that might not be an accurate number. I'd have to actually do math like figure it out in my head. But there are a lot of home rehabbers that are always looking for volunteers to okay. come in, help them out a couple hours a week, a few hours a week. Um, uh, but volunteering is the best way. Um, or if you can attend like the national conference or your state conferences. Uh, so like I'm on the Oregon Wildlife Rehab Association board, we have mm-hmm. our state conference April 6th in Sun River, Oregon. So that's a great place. People register for $15, gets you in, and you can just learn about wildlife rehab, meet other people in the field, yeah. uh, see who needs help. It's a good way to find out if places are hiring. Um, you're not likely to get a job in wildlife rehab unless you have experience as a volunteer in some okay. capacity. So you got to spend some time doing it. you got to spend some time. Um, I wouldn't have hired my rehab person had she not had two years' experience in a facility down mm-hmm. in... Um, Southern California. Okay. So she had two years experience. She also had a degree, but I cared very little about the degree compared degree compared to the hands-on experience in the yeah, facility. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's the best way you start to start volunteering, and then you like I have one volunteer that had no experience in wildlife rehab. Um, started volunteering here, and now she covers a shift by herself with no staff. Okay. Um, she came to the conference in St. Louis with us last week. Uh, and if I had an open position that I could have hired her for, I would definitely hire her in. Just and she has no paid experience, just hands-on here, yeah. and I would feel comfortable hiring her if I could. Um, so that's the best way I'd say: just get in, just find a facility and get into it. You know, get immersed in it. Okay. Um, it is important, I think, to find a reputable facility. Mm-hmm. Um, do your research. You know, you can look them up on GuideStar, the nonprofit websites, but. Guide, uh, guide star guide star yep okay. so if you you can it's a free website where you can look up almost any nonprofit. they're not, not their tax returns to figure out their money how it's being spent you know uh-huh. that sort of thing um it's it's a good way because there are a lot of home rehabbers that aren't necessarily the most professional and to them you know we use the term rehab bunny huggers <laughs> which <laughs> is a no-no um people that really truly mean well mm-hmm. but are not don't have the experience or expertise to really yeah. be doing and they misrepresent wildlife rehabilitation which again was what my talk was about it was yeah. just how to change perceptions of the public you know through your social media pages and through you know how you how you present yourself as a professional because yeah. um, wildlife rehabilitation is becoming or has become a more uh, mainstream profession a reputable profession mm-hmm. um, so trying to make sure everyone else feels that way about it too is important oh yeah um, definitely uh, but yeah, just getting into it, finding a facility. You know, if you go into a facility that's filthy, <laughs> and you know you got animals running around loose in the clinic, might want to reconsider that. Um, which is how our facility. Like, I'm not going to sugarcoat. That's how we were prior. We're, yeah. Our founder, and we call it founders. And you get these founders that started out small, mm-hmm. grew the facility from their home to needing more space to our like our facility situation. Yeah. But really didn't have protocols, policies, contracts, mm-hmm. didn't have cleanliness standards. Mm-hmm. Um, just barely squeaked by with the regulations, you know. <laughs> and so when I, you know, I'd gone to a conference right after she died, and kind of was like, "Wow, we need to step, step up, step up, game, step right? up the yeah. game." And so we, I mean, we have policies for just about what we're working on policies for everything. We have policies for a lot of things, mm-hmm. but of course, policies take a lot of time for different species. We're gonna yeah. have species-specific protocols and policies, and and you know, we routine maintenance and cleaning, and I mean, it's. So changing it's, it's ever evolving, and that's yeah. that's what why these conferences that we go to are so important. And you know, every profession has a conference, right? And and so that's um, kind of really drives home the fact that this is a profession anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so these conferences help us make sure we're keeping up with the best practices and ever changing. Yeah, um, rehab and so. So, um, what what sort of thing would somebody be doing as a volunteer? So I imagine you guys don't do like surgeries. Do you go to a vet for that? Right. Do you... So, so yeah. what would, like, if I was going to start volunteering with you guys today, what sort of things would you have me be doing? Yeah, so our volunteers, um, a part of our transition um, was uh, having an actual training program. So I have a volunteer handbook. In order to start volunteering, you have to sit through two hour or so volunteer orientation. Where oh, I don't have time for that. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then uh, go through all the policies, protocols, what you can expect as, an organ- or as a volunteer in our organization. And then when we schedule you for your first day your first day it's a tiered program you start with 
level one, which is um, animal care support. So it's basic uh, laundry dishes, mm-hmm. diet prep. So okay. you don't actually handle um, birds the first couple weeks even mm-hmm. um, of uh, volunteering with us. Yeah. Um, and then once we, and it's we move you through how we feel you are progressive. So like, we're like, wow, they, they didn't, can't even figure out how to cut the They food. can't figure out how to wash a dish. Exactly. <laughs> then we're like, or can't figure out the laundry this time. We're going to make you do another week. And if we're like, mm, so iffy about it, we're yeah. going to push you through. And that might be something where our staff's like, I don't feel comfortable having you handle wildlife. Um, and that's just something, and a lot of time that turns people away, but you know, yeah. we have to protect our animals. Oh yeah. Well, they're, they're number volunteers. That's yeah. the whole reason that you're here. Right. Well, safety is probably still number yeah, one. Yeah, exactly. Safety yeah. is number one uh, of the people and the animal. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, then you move into like basic bird handling. So um, we'll teach you how to catch a, 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 a swallow, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or somehow have a handle it gently. We're not going to... Then intermediate is like goals. Something that can hurt you but won't kill you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> won't bite your finger off. Um, and then, you know, then you have the advanced bird handling, which is... Um, raptors, bald eagles, yeah. things that will actually get things you. Things that can hurt you. Herons, yep. face. Exactly. Face-stabbing herons. Exactly, yeah. So we kind of move you through, and depending on what you want to learn, we'll teach you anything. We'll teach you how to give subcutaneous fluids with a, a, an injection, right? We'll mm-hmm. teach you how to give medications. We'll teach you how to tube feed a bird. Um, we do surgeries our vet does. Um, we bring it to our veterinarian over uh, Warrenton, Oregon. But... Otherwise, we do basic sutures ourselves. Okay. So if something comes in with a laceration, we'll sew it up. Okay. Right? We prescribe antibiotics ourselves. We have a small lab. So you know, if a volunteer were interested, we would teach them how to draw blood, spin it down in our centrifuge, and calculate the packed cell volume. Mm-hmm. You know, the the total protein in the blood. All these different kind of medical things. We'll teach you how to do a fecal so that you can check for what to look for in the fecal. Yeah. Um, so we teach a lot because <laughs> <laughs> we rely on volunteers yeah and so we need to kind of have those people trained oh, yeah, properly definitely. so that's what's kind of to be expected um as a volunteer again it's all at your own pace if you said i didn't never want i never want to touch a bird you know i want to help with fixing enclosures well we'll hook you up with our maintenance guy yeah um if you just want to do laundry and dishes and diet prep that's fine if you want to help me <laughs> stuff envelopes you know that's what you can do but yeah but basically volunteer driven so yeah right so if someone wants to learn everything that we really you know if someone wants to learn all of the medical stuff mm-hmm. um my rehab staff will progress you through pretty quick so right. yeah cool so like if like we're kind of we're we're in march now so we're getting getting into nesting season and young birds starting to be around right and i, I know it's it's different for seabirds versus ter- terrestrial birds but do you guys see like an uptick in like Land birds of people seeing mm-hmm. robins, and, baby birds and falling out of nests, baby, baby birds potentially yeah. falling out of nests or being knocked out by their cat or whatever horrible things. Oh yeah, happen like that. Yeah, so typically we'll start getting baby bird calls, probably not even until like end of March and usually really into April. All right, is when we start seeing them. But um, oh yeah, we get we get a huge. I mean, that's one of our busiest times is mm-hmm. baby season. I mean, it's busy not only because we're getting more intakes, but because yeah. these animals are every 15, 20 minutes from sunup to sundown, you're feeding them. Oh my right? gosh. Yeah. And so we take, we're going to, we take volunteers. <laughs> we need volunteers <laughs> sitting in our baby bird room feeding things, and then, you know, for 15 minutes you read a book or something. Then you stuff food in their, you know, mouths again. Yeah. But yeah, we get our fair share, and it's everything from robins to we get owl calls and corvids, you know, crows and, yeah. and jays. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, of course, baby mammals too, mm-hmm. but... Uh, swallows. I mean, that's probably one of our number one baby birds. Is swallows? We get dozens of swallows. We have a whole enclosure that's our swallow enclosure outside really? of the barn um, that we modified specifically for raising swallows and like getting them acclimated outside. Um, but their name suggests they are really good at eating, and so they're not too hard to raise. But um, but yeah, we we get a lot. Um, I'm sorry. Was there more to that? Oh, I, I was just kind of getting getting towards sure. what should somebody be looking for? Like, right? If if you find a baby, like what to do, what, what not what, to do, what to do, what not to do. Yeah. If you sure. see a baby bird sure. on the ground, like when should you mess with it? When should you just yeah. leave it alone? Yeah, like, you know, we recommend if you find a baby bird, give us a call. 
right? All right. Um, or give a rehab center a call. At least ask the questions. We don't recommend touching it right away. Um, so there are different stages to baby birds, right? Mm-hmm. Especially these um, uh, altricial, uh, we call them baby birds, the ones that are born naked, can't see. Yeah, robins. The ones that, yeah, like robins, swallows, the ones that need to be cared for by their parents. Mm-hmm. As opposed to the precocial that, like ducklings, that can get up and move and do their things as soon as they're out of the day. Yeah. Really. So it's the altricial ones that were a little, um, that are more difficult. So you have um, hatchling, ones that are like, Zero to three days old, right? Or zero to two days old, really. They're the ones that fresh out of the egg, you know, eyes closed. Yeah, they are, you know, basically larva, right? Bird larva, right? <laughs> Bird larva. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so then you, and so if you found a one of those that can like mm-hmm. barely lift its head up, um, the hatchlings, like literally not a single feather on them, right? Not a single piece of fluff. Yeah. Um, if you found one of those on the ground, Call us, but you know, pick it up. That it is a myth that the parent birds won't take their babies back, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of birds can't smell, <laughs> right? Uh, a large number. A lot of seabirds can smell. Vultures can smell. Yeah. But there are a large number of most of the little passerines, songbirds that you see out there don't have a sense of smell really, and so they're not going to smell human on their baby. Mm-hmm. So typically, what we recommend is we find a little nestling uh, or hatchling or nestlings. And nestlings are the ones that are fuzzy. Don't have actual feathers yet. This is just the the plumes, the little fuzzy ones. Yeah. Um, and you just have the big yolk belly, you know. <laughs> um, those ones and the hatchlings, we recommend if you see the nest and you can reach nest, put it back in the nest. Okay. Um, if you don't see a nest um, or the nest is something you cannot reach, give us a call or give a rehab center uh, facility a call, and we'll take them in. So we recommend keeping them in a warm place, mm-hmm. warm, quiet, stress-free location. Um, getting to us as quick as possible. We don't recommend any food or water um, just because it's a specialized thing and making sure it's getting the right thing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so nestlings, hatchlings, if you can put them back in the nest, put them back if you don't see, like, a clear, evident wound. If you see it on the ground and it's got punctures or scratches, it needs to come to a ramp so yeah. it can be antibiotics right away. Because typically that's a cat issue, right? Um, now, fledglings, um, and a lot of people don't know this, um, a lot of birds probably do know this, but fledglings spend three to five days on the ground learning to fly. Mm-hmm. So they don't just jump out of the just nest flopping. flying. Yep. They hop around on the ground. They have almost pretty much full feathers going on. Um, their tail will be short. You know, they'll, they look like kids, you know, they look like little kid birds. Yeah. Um, but fledglings are meant to be on the ground. So if you see them, we recommend people leave them alone. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we get that call a lot. Oh, but what if a cat There's a lot of cats here? Well, you know, we can't protect every animal from a predator. Right? Yeah. Even introduce artificial predators like cats. <laughs> Keep your cat inside. Keep your cat inside. You'll help that baby bird out there. Right. So, you know, and if someone's got one in their backyard, the fence in the backyard, we say, is there any way that you can not bring your dog out there or keep your cat in for a few days? Because really, it'll be flying more than a few days. Yeah. Um, the bird, the parents are feeding the bird on the ground. And it's a really vital time in the development and growth of this bird because it's learning. It's environment. It's learning. Okay. That thing wants to kill me. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, these things are safe. This is what I eat. Um. And though we could raise that bird the rest of the way, first of all, fledglings don't gape anymore for humans. They know we're not their parent. And mm-hmm. so gaping is when they, of course, open their mouth for food. So when we bring in a fledgling, they won't open their mouths for us anymore. Um, you almost have to force it, which is highly stressful. And stress is a number one killer in wildlife rehabilitation. Um, that's really hard to mitigate that stress. Um, secondly, we can't teach foraging habits, right? We are not a good substitute for mom, right? <laughs> You don't, so, you don't get out there and crawl around and show them this no, is what you... No, I mean, we do, we try to mimic, that's a huge part of wildlife rehab is doing our very best to give the most natural substitute. Yeah. Um, so, like, when we're raising corbids, for instance, we have a special log, or we get new ones every year, that I drill holes in, and we'll stuff, you know, um, hard-boiled eggs and some of them berries and stuff, and it teaches that foraging. You know, okay. Look around. Instead of just putting a food bowl out there, like they're used to with us. Yeah. When we're teaching, we put them in an enclosure. We hide food around. Teaches them to look kind of for it. Yeah. Um, it basically tries to teach them that not all foods will be put in a bowl for you for the rest of your life. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, fledglings we recommend leave them alone. You know, unless again there's a clear, evident injury, mm-hmm. um, they might not always try to run from you. You know, because they're no, learning dumb they're kids. Dumb. Yeah, right. And so they might not always try to run from you. You know, we do if if it's like in the middle of the road, feel free to pick it up because again, mom won't care. And put it in a bush nearby. Mm-hmm. It'll call to its mom. Mom's probably somewhere watching, right? Uh, mom and dad. 
probably wondering, right. what, the, what the heck are you doing? So, exactly, yeah. Thing, so, but I'm not going to interest Yeah, right. So, um, and some you'll know, like uh, a crow, juvenile crow, mm-hmm. legend crow, you'll know that mom's there, right? Because she and dad and the whole family's going to come dive bomb. And of course, you know what? Um, and like I said, a lot of fledglings, you can tell they're fledglings. Crows are very evident because they have bright blue eyes compared to the adults that have brown eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that's kind of kind of the gist of it. Just all right. leave them be. You know, we recommend doing all your pruning in the. You know, we tell people to try to not do any pruning in the spring when babies are happy because yeah. that's when you're going to end up knock the nest knocking down. nests down. Yep. Um, there are things that can be done. You know, if a, say a swallow nest falls, um, you can actually. Love to put like in a cottage cheese container mm-hmm. and fasten it back where it was, and parents will still come by or huh. nearby. Um, we try to re nest some of our birds. Like, if people bring us swallows, for instance, and we know where there's a bunch of swallow nests. Um, in fact, we have a bunch of tree swallow nests all over our property, um, the nest boxes like on that. Um, <laughs> so, we actually, if we get tree swallows or even bright greens, um, We'll check all our nest boxes, see what ages are in there, mm-hmm. and so we try to match them up, and make sure they're not oh. overcrowded. We'll try That's to cool. throw them in there too. Yeah. Does, um, it, does that work pretty pretty well? Pretty well. Some species, yeah. some species are really like uh, we've tried to rehome, rehome, foster out ducklings, for instance. Yeah, which again are precocial, so they hatch, they're running, mm-hmm. um, and they're we love ducklings. They're messy, but they they eat. I mean, you just put food in front of them, they take care of themselves. Um, <laughs> I, but, I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> the issue, though, is mom doesn't always want... The new mom doesn't always want new babies, right? Yeah. She's already got 15 she's caring for, right? She doesn't yeah. want three more. Um, and sometimes they'll they'll attack the baby. So it's really... Uh, yeah. It's a really... You, you have to trick mom somehow. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, she's not looking for a baby. Then. She, <laughs> well, you know, she's like trying to wrong. figure out. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, no, we try to re-nest a lot. You know, like, we get a, a, a baby great horned owl. Mm-hmm. Say the tree, the nest fell down, or or the tree was cut down. We have had that before. Um, the Zachary rehabbers will actually make a nest in a basket, like a wicker basket or a woolen uh-huh. basket, and hoist it up in a tree right nearby, and parents will still take care of the baby. Oh, okay. Um, so so, it's, they're, so they're, they're really not too picky. Birds, birds are, and from, from really, all the myths, they're yeah. super picky, but and they're really. And the thing is, yeah. if you stress the parents out enough. They're gonna take off. If you have the baby too long, they're gonna take off. Yeah, don't forget um, about it. And right, it's dead. So we had last year, two years ago, we had um, Ilwaco High School has over in Washington. They have osprey nests that used to nest on top of the football stadium lights. Okay. Now it is against the law to as soon as a nest is mm-hmm. active, it's against federal law to mess with that nest. And what active means is as soon as that first egg is laid, mm-hmm. it's active until that chick is gone. Um, you can tear down nests all you want until that egg is laid. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, this nest has been there forever. Well, there are apparently two fledglings that hadn't flown yet, Osprey, in that nest. And Ilwaco High School maintenance staff uh, went up there and wanted to clear it off before before school started. Or kids mm-hmm. came back and went up there, scared the babies off. They fluttered to the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and parents weren't caring for them down there. So we went and got both of these little chicks that hadn't flown yet. Osprey are the absolute, I shouldn't say, they're almost the worst to rehab. They don't self-feed typically. Um, you almost have to starve them to get them yeah. self-feed. Oh, yeah. But with the babies, we don't, we've done that with adults where we're mm-hmm. like saying, I'm not going to feed you until they eat, you know. Yeah. Um, but the babies, we don't do that too because they need food constantly. So, they're growing. You know, with, with baby Osprey, you have to like force feed them a whole bunch of food one time a day. Um, you know, typically we would feed our birds twice a day, but with those, you don't want to handle them too much and stress them out. So mm-hmm. one time a day, we just give them, we just gorge them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but these birds basically were like, oh my gosh, we, they're going to migrate. And they, and osprey require parents. They need parents to teach them everything. And that's why it's always stressful to get a baby osprey. And so we had these two. And, uh, parents, we had volunteers monitoring to see if the parents were still around. Well, they were, but then there was a couple days where, because we had these birds for two weeks. And there were a couple days where parents were gone it's like oh my gosh they must have left you know and you know the parents will tend to their nest before they leave make sure it's going to hold up for the next year yep and then they migrate out migrate back but we're worried that we missed it and we didn't have a choice so basically i said as soon as those birds are even starting to fly off the ground they're out of here whether they know how to fly well or not we have to get them out hope that we can release them and hope parents find them it was a huge the media showed up and it was like so stressful because i'm like i don't know i don't know if it's gonna work right (laughs) These birds hardly know how to fly. We just got them until they were getting off the ground and getting height. 
but they don't have land, you know, and they're still really novice at this. So we bring them back to the high school um, and release them, and there's no parents anywhere. And these babies are flying, trying to land on things, and like failing and flying off some more, and just flying in circles forever and ever and ever. And and I'm like panicking, right? Because like, yeah. parents are gone, and there's nothing I can do now. But then suddenly, over the trees, two adults come flying, each had a fish in their Townsend came right back and went straight to their kids two weeks oh later and was feeding, which was bizarre that they were even care for them two weeks later. Yeah. But they could tell those were babies, at least. I don't know if they knew they were their babies or not, but they still had that parental kind of yeah. um, urge. And so they fed these babies that were begging for food and, and then huh. they all migrated out together. So it was That's awesome. pretty That's awesome. Amazing. Yeah, we do that Osprey Fog. You know, there's a nest um, in Warrington by the Arnie's restaurant mm-hmm. uh, yeah. by the high school there. And the baby thought of that. Well, actually, the baby was thrown out by an eagle that tried to take it. And so we took it in, looked it over. It was fine. And we um, worked with Arbor Care, local tree uh, cutting service. Yeah. Um, used their bucket truck. Used their big old bucket truck to put it back up there. Yeah. And it flew away like the next day. Oh. So, <laughs> Seems like a lot of work. To, it was a lot of work. So, but, but it survived. So we did it. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, that's awesome. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, basically, I mean, there's just it depends on the stage. And that's why we always recommend calling... A rehab facility. Yeah. Just explaining, okay, well, it has no feathers. It's fuzzy. Okay, you see a nest. You know, we, we can walk you through, but typically, if it's naked or just fuzzy and not real feathers, put it back in the nest or bring it to us if you mm-hmm. can't find the nest. Um, if it's a fledgling, has feathers hopping around on the ground, leave it. Parents are going to take care of it still. Yeah. Because um, we do our best not to kidnap. That's kind of what we say. We don't want to kidnap any babies that don't need care. Yeah. Because um, there's a rehabber in Portland, um, at Portland Audubon, his, his, uh, he has a quote that says the, the animals we help best are the ones that never enter our facility because, you know, if they don't need help, we're not going to take them in. So, yeah. Well, and it's extra work for yeah. you guys when it doesn't need it. Right. It's, and that's, you kind, know, kind of seems like shooting yourself in the foot for no reason. We're splitting our, yeah, we're splitting our resources now for sale. It doesn't necessarily need to be here. Yeah. But now that it's here, we have to care for it. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well, is, is, yeah, is there anything else you wanted to tell us about uh, either this facility or rehab in general? Or? No, I mean, I would I would encourage people to look up local wildlife rehabilitation facilities. We're yeah. all nonprofits. Um, we rely on public donation. We rely on volunteers to help us get through. Um, and you know, we are, are the work we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm biased, but it's very important work. You know, yeah. um, saving the one individual animal isn't necessarily going to help populations, but the education that we provide to the public um, through helping the animal. Um, the compassion we're teaching people, um, but also wildlife rehabilitation. You know, it is medical field. It's it's veterinary work with wildlife, and we do it yeah. for free. You know, um, <laughs> but wildlife they tell us what's wrong with the environments. Um, so we're kind of like the front lines to know what's going on out there. Yeah. So if we see a big die off of seabirds suddenly, well, we need to know why that's happening. We can look to the ocean. So they're environmental indicators, right? Mm-hmm. So wildlife rehabilitation work is really the front lines of knowing what's going on in our world. Um, and it's everything contributes to the health of the entire planet. Yeah. And so it's very important work that we do. And, and so, again, I encourage people um, to look up wildlife rehabilitation centers in their area, their state, their country, because um, everyone needs help yeah. and takes us all. So. Well, geez, thank you so much for spending some time with yeah, us and, yeah. and telling our listeners about rehabbing because it is kind of a... Um, mystery, I yeah. think, to the rest of us. So yeah. we really yeah. appreciate you. People just time. call them up and don't know what's, what happens. Exactly. Once they let go, yeah. 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 No, I appreciate you guys being here and talking to me. Yeah. No, thank you. So we are so glad that Joshua took the time to sit down with us. Um, we know he's busy, and it's just before like the big baby season starts. And he just got back from from a conference, so he was like that. Today was like the first day back in the office. I'm sure he's worn out. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you so much. We really enjoyed talking to you. And he led us on a tour afterwards of the facility. And it's really impressive. Yeah, 100, 105 acres of property. And they have lots of large cages. and Like flight, fl- um, some flight, flight cages. Flight cages, yeah. That are, I think it said it was like 120 feet long. Something like that. For, it's huge. For, for the pelicans when they, when they have to rehab pelicans to get them back flight ready. It's, it takes a long, long cage to get a big bird like that in the air. Yeah, and it was really interesting hearing about some of those different rare birds, like that albatross. I remember mm-hmm. reading that in the paper years ago because that was like the, that was like, supposedly like a record in the, in Oregon for like an albatross. Oh really? But you know they can't really count it or they can't. <laughs> and there was a lot of confusion over that when it happened. I remember huh. it. But um, yeah, the facility is really nice and. 
I can't wait to see where it goes. What he was talking about with the education stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, they're in this big house that I think they have a ton of space to do educational programming. So I'm excited to see how that plays out. Oh, yeah. As as, as they build their education program more from more of an education program element rather than being 100% focused on just rehab, being adding a little bit, bringing the public in to see some things. Sounds like it. Going good places, hopefully. Yeah, and so we definitely encourage you to check out your local rehabber to see where they're at. So if you yeah. need to use them at some point in the future, if you find an animal that's injured, um, you know, it's better than trying to find them on the fly. Yeah, know, know where you need to go before before you run into a situation where you're looking at a pelican with a broken wing on the side of the highway trying to figure out what you need to do about it. Yeah, and also um, keep track of what they take because not all rehabbers will take all all species of wildlife. That's true. Um, when I worked at Texas, in Texas, they have a, a whole list on the Texas Parks and Wildlife website that you can put in your county and then it pops up with all the rehabbers that are in that area. Oh, so if you need that. to use them. And um, a lot of times those ones were listed like will not take squirrels or will only take squirrels or <laughs> we'll only like, take squirrels. Yes, there's some people that right, love then. squirrels. That's a, um, that's a thing, I guess. But yeah, that's definitely something to think about when you are potentially going to, you know, look after wildlife is that yeah. you might find things that are injured. So oh, yeah. just being able to be prepared is mm-hmm. a great course of action, I feel like. And also, they always accept donations. The wildlife rehabbers and the centers are always looking for donations. When we um, left Josh, we had two big bags of towels and blankets that we had that, you know, we were no longer using. And so we yeah. left those with him. And I'm sure, of course, they'd probably take some money, too. Oh. The, if we had that. If, if we had money, <laughs> we would we would give money. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the, somebody can always use something. Yeah. You can always help someone with something. Yeah. So, If thank I could you. just talk right. Then yeah. My, You'll my get tongue there. is, like, going in a circle. Yeah. That was gross. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Um, so next week, so we, we're headed to yeah. the Wings Over Water Birding Festival this mm-hmm. weekend, yeah. and the next week we're going to put another stamp in our passport. Yeah, another stamp in our passport. We're going down to Costa Rica. Yeah, so we're really excited for that. Yeah, hopefully we'll get to do a little bit of birding while we're there. Yeah, we're going with a group of high school students um, from a local high school that my sister, Alexis, if you guys listen to the Ecuador bonus episode, you'll remember her. She um, takes a group of students to Costa Rica every other year. And so we are lucky enough to be able to go this year and be some chaperones. Of course, they're going to be working on their Spanish and learning more about uh, the culture of Costa Rica, but we're going to try to get some birding in. Yeah, we've already we already have our Costa Re- Birds of Costa Rica field guide, so we're we're Kinda ready. Crack the spine on it. I've I've opened it up. I've looked through it quite. A, <laughs> there's like probably thirty sticky notes in it now. Good. <laughs> so look forward to all that. Yeah. So thank you for listening to our podcast this week. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it and or learned something. Um, please rate, review, and subscribe. On Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Music, and anywhere else that we might just kind of pop up. Um, If you would like to connect with us, just follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Um, We're on Instagram at Hannah Goes Birding and Eric Goes Birding. Eric with a K. Eric with a K, Hannah with an H. And uh, our Facebook page is Hannah and Eric Go Birding. You can also email us at Hannah and Eric Go Birding at gmail.com. Tell us what you liked. Tell us what you hated. Just... Just tell us stuff. Just talk to us. <laughs> Share Please. us with your friends. <laughs> Share us with your friends. Help us build a following. And we'll see you guys in two weeks.